This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, so much of what we have been talking about and will continue to talk about has to do with the future of work, jobless claims, the jobs report from last week. All of it comes back to that, ultimately. Even in our conversation with Chris Nassetta, we spoke about his employees, what needs to be done. Uh, going forward to keep them employed and, and basically just allowing them to keep living day to day. Adam Ozmek is with us, chief economist for Upwork. He joins us on the phone from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So, Adam, you look at a day like today with the jobless claims coming out. I feel like we're almost numb to the actual numbers at this point. But obviously, the market reacting in part to that, in part to what we heard from Jay Powell yesterday. What do you make of the employment and work environment right now? Well, look, we shouldn't be numb to it. Uh, We're still, at this point, jobless claims tell us that there's still, you know, more than 2 million people who are filing for unemployment 12 weeks into this crisis. And that's definitely not something we should uh, become numb to. And it's, uh, you know, it really shows you what's, that we're still having uh, damage out there in the economy. And even though overall job growth may be returning, we still have a long way to go. There's still, you know, 20 million people out there who who have lost their jobs and haven't made it back to work yet. And it's important to stay focused on that and not mistake um, a little bit of good news for a suggestion that we're out of the woodwork yet. Well, let's talk about that, because I feel like up until today, the market had been in many ways looking past it. Do you think that we're starting to think more about it uh, more seriously? Well, I think, you know, yes, the chair of the Federal Reserve, what he's thinking about it. And I think, you know, his perspective is, is, is pretty spot on, which is, yes, we're starting to bounce back. Yes, a lot of people are going to be coming back to their jobs. But underneath all of this, you still have a lot of small businesses going under. You still have a tremendous amount of stress in the economy. And you still have um, you know, what's probably going to end up being uh, potentially millions of people whose temporary job losses have turned permanent. And I think that that's a major risk here that we sort of we miss that underlying damage happening uh, when you sort of get distracted by the millions of jobs in the payroll report every month. Yeah, I mean, this is what we need to get to, right? I mean, if we have a subpar economy, Adam, you're an economist, you understand how this works. I mean, companies aren't going to bring back workers if there is no demand, unless there's some kind of relief program that helps them keep workers employed, which I know was initially part of the government's uh, relief efforts. But I, I do wonder... You know, you're starting to hear from Washington that, you know, it's time to get the economy back to work and, and maybe there's not so much support for another round of help. Well, I do think that would be a mistake. And I think that one of the challenges is it's really hard to see the underlying damage that's occurring. But I think that there are some signs in the data that should um, really be making us worry a bit. For example, we have a new survey out, Future Workforce Report at Upwork, 
where we talked to hiring managers and we asked them about, you know, their layoffs and their furloughs. And what we found was a significant percent of hiring managers thought that a lot of those people who were laid off weren't coming back. Hmm. And so you look at that, you look at the jobs report that says we're now dealing with, you know, upwards of 2 million people who think that their layoffs are permanent. You start to piece these things together and it, it really suggests that there is some underlying permanent job loss. And that the Fed is right, that we're not going to bounce back from this by the end of the year. We're going to be struggling for quite a bit more. And what about the the notion of remote work? Because, you know, we talk about it, I, I feel like, in – or a lot of people, I should say, talk about it in generally sort of upbeat terms. You know, it's like, oh, I, you know, I can do this. I can work from home. You know, for a certain segment of the white-collar workforce, there is there is something – for many people that is somewhat liberating uh, about that. And yet it feels like there are economic effects of that, that maybe we are not taking as much into account. Help us understand that. Sure. And, you know, I think overall that's definitely correct. Everyone's sort of focused on the short term right now. And I think that they aren't really thinking about the economic impacts of remote work, but I think that that's missing, um, you know, some positive things that are going to come from the switch to remote work. I think that Mm -hmm. there are a lot of really good effects for the economy. You know, for example, you know, at, at Upwork, we've been helping people work remote for two decades. So our clients, our uh, freelancers, this is just how they're used to working. And, you know, what we've seen over uh, this crisis is just a really strong continuity of business because people uh, that work with us, they, they know how to work remote. We help them work remote. And it, it helps, it, you know, it helps you get through uh, disruptions like this. And I think that that's true for people can work remote in general. It, it means your way of working is much more secure and much less uh, likely to be affected. So I think that that's one sort of short-term positive thing. And in the long run, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of benefit to increase remote work. Uh, lower commuting times, uh, lower office space costs. Right. And really, it gives, it gives companies the ability to hire anywhere, find talent wherever it is. Yeah, you know, and I think about that, and we have had conversations this week about just think about what that means for maybe developing cities that are struggling or communities that are struggling around the country. If you can work anywhere and li- or live anywhere and work anywhere, just think about the possibilities that opens to really revive, you know, more economies around a country rather than just those major urban cities, Adam. Absolutely. I mean, something we've seen for the last few decades in this country is that economic opportunity has been concentrating more and more in a handful of very high-cost uh, cities. And I don't think that that's, that's a good thing. I think that that means that if you want the economic opportunity of a really good job, often you have to move to these high-cost cities. And yes, you get paid more, but then that, that pay gets passed on to the landlord or the high housing costs. Um, I think it's much better for the country in the long run if opportunity is spread more evenly across the country. And remote work has the potential to be one of the first things in quite a while leaning the economy in that direction, whereas, you know, up until recently, right. all the things have been leaning towards concentrating opportunity. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time. Some great insights from Adam Ozmak. He is chief economist at Upwork, uh, talking to us about the future of work and both immediately and in the longer term. Well, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. My dog right now is somewhere in the house and is being quiet. Um, we do want to talk. Speaking of stress. 
Speaking of stress, uh, the virus statistics, I got to say, continue to be stressful. I did see one uh, just crossing the Bloomberg. Our team got it about California COVID cases now rising 2.3% versus the seven-day average of 2.1%. So we've seen an uptick certainly in, uh, I feel like, the western part and across the country. Um, So let's talk about this, this second wave that we're seeing, troubling on many levels. And I especially think so, Jason, for those who are already feeling a lot of stress at the moment, the shutdowns, the possibility of another shutdown, Charlie Pellet working at home, feeling the stress. Um, it's a public health story. It's also a public mental health story. Dr. Laura Murray is a senior scientist and clinical uh, psychologist at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Of course, the school is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropy. She joins us on the phone from Houston, Texas. Dr. Murray, it is good to have you with us. I do think people see these headlines, you know, an uptick of cases, talk of a possible second wave, and folks that are, are, are just, you know, looking to get back to normal, wondering, you know, when will this happen? And I do wonder about the mental health toll it's taking on everybody. Yeah, good to be back with both of you. Um, There is certainly a a mental health toll that is happening here with the pandemic and really just the uncertainty of it all, right? Um, As the times have changed and we were socially distanced and now some people or some states are moving back and others is not. And as you said, we're seeing a rise in different states. So I, I think that one of the best things to do is, is what you all were doing just now, uh, recognizing stress, <laughs> recognizing <Yeah>. symptoms <laughs> of stress, and, and really just acknowledging it and being self-aware. The, the more we try to hide things like that, the worse it can be. And so how do we deal with it, uh, Dr. Murray, on sort of a day-to-day basis? Like, what's the practical advice? You know, Carol and I both have teenagers. You know, we've sort of dealt with, you know, the sort of cooped up uh, element of this. We're all dealing with it, many of us with our partners as well. What's some practical advice that that you give folks? Yeah. You know, I think we're now switching back to some initial practical advice that we really started uh, when we moved into aggressive social distancing. Uh, One of the best things is get everyone on a schedule. Get people aware. I know it, it sounds so silly, but it gets everyone sleeping better. It keeps people on schedules. It, it eliminates a lot of the uncertainty at home. And I certainly recognize challenges of that as, as many of us in school years enroll into summers yes. and there's not. Well, that, that's open, exactly right? what I was thinking. As soon as you said that, I thought, you know what? I just had a teenager who said, well, I'm done with school. Don't wake me up in the morning. And that <laughs> right. is not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> Right, right. And unfortunately, it, it is, you know, I don't know about you two, but I find even if I have just, a, you know, a free day is nice every once in a while, but, but if it happens for months, you sort of lose, you know, what am I supposed to be doing? And so yeah. even though it, it might be a, a pain to really get your uh, kids and, and ourselves on, on somewhat of a schedule, what is your goal? What could you be doing? What, what can they be doing on their iPads or, or computers or phones that maybe isn't just wasting time that maybe they're learning a new language or right and plan things i feel like you know because so much of our world shut down and things that we used to do whether it's going i know jason you were able to go with your family to a restaurant but things like that go on a trip plan a vacate like all these things that kind of help define our world and define kind of our, our, our lives. Like so much of that has been put on hold. Um, and Jason, and I both have, as we said, you know, 
kids, teenagers, kids that are thinking about colleges, their juniors going to be seniors in, in high school, like you're, you're trying to figure all this out and yet it's, it's not an easy process, but I do feel like you've got to make plans for things to kind of, you know, I don't know, give people things to look forward to. Um, I don't know. I think that's got to be part of it too. And create, helps create kind of some scheduling, not only short term, but longer term. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's so important in talking with our kids about things like this and, and get their, get their thoughts on it. What are you thinking? You know, I think folks in college, people heading to college, people that had to come back from college, there's so much uncertainty in their lives. And so again, just bringing it to the forefront, taking time to talk about it and um, planning what we can, but also being honest and clear about what we can't plan. It's very similar to what we tell leaders to do, right? Like we don't want them going into this pandemic, giving their teams information that's not true or not accurate or just not being honest about what is uncertain. Oh, I think it's a really good point. And, and it's such a great point too, that, you know, sometimes, uh, it goes a long way to just say, yeah, we don't know. Or, you know, and also this is terrible. Like, and, and it's yeah. really hard. Uh, and I think uh, sort of admitting that is a, a really important thing. Good advice. Uh, Dr. Laura Murray, senior scientist, clinical psychologist. That's Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Of course, that school supported by Mike Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies and Bloomberg LP, the parent of this radio station. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. We do want to welcome our Bloomberg TV audience who are joining us at this point. And as our Annie Massa, Jason, recently of Bloomberg News, wrote and reported, John Rogers is one of the fun industry's leading African-American figures after founding Aerial Investments nearly four decades ago. He is co-executive officer of the top-performing $10 billion fund manager. And John joins us on the phone from Chicago. And John, um, welcome to Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. We're, we're delighted to have you with us. Um, you know, it's interesting. Our cover story of Bloomberg Business Week magazine is about the disconnect of what's going on in society, the virus, the unrest and protests over racism, and we were seeing the markets kind of just take off. It's been a very different tone today, and it does feel like almost the equity markets are catching up to some of what ails us in society. I'm curious how you see it. Well, we think that the um, I think the, we think the markets are weak today, mostly because of the fear that COVID is coming back, and that there's some risk that certain states might have to close down again. And I think that is just a very disturbing uh, phenomenon for the markets. Uh, we're hoping things can stabilize and not spike too aggressively, but I think that is the major problem we're facing today. So, John, we're living in a time where it feels like it's crisis on crisis in many ways, and both of the major crises that we're facing uh, really have laid bare some of the massive inequalities in our system and in our country. And I wonder what you make of it, because we can't separate these two in many ways, the pandemic and what we've seen over the last few weeks with uh, you know protests and a lot of unrest as it relates to Really, I think it's safe to say systemic and structural racism across this country. What do you make of it? What do we do about it? Well, I think that our, you know, our huge problem in this country is the wealth gap has just gotten larger and larger over the last 40 years. I could have never imagined when I started Ariel in 1983 that that would be the case. I just continue to think we would benefit from the civil rights movement of the 60s. But it just hasn't happened. 
as you know, the data shows from Ray Bashar's data at the Federal Reserve of St. Louis uh, between 1992 and 2016, uh, African-American college-educated folks saw their wealth decline 10 percent, while college-educated whites saw their wealth increase 96 percent. That's dramatic, and we're going backwards. What we have to do to improve things is we have to get corporations to not only hire more executive, more African-Americans in executive ranks and leadership roles, but we have to do business with African-American companies in everything we do, outside of just construction and catering and the supplier diversity things. We need to move to doing business with African-Americans in the part of the economy that's growing today, financial services, professional services, and technology. And I think we actually have to do away with that term, supplier diversity, and use what the University of Chicago uses and calls business diversity so we can have a strong African-American entrepreneurial community that will provide jobs and philanthropy for urban communities. And that would be something that would be critical to move our country forward. What about the investment industry, particularly, John, and how they can make a difference? You know, we've talked a lot about ESG funds. They've been around for a while, and yet I think many would argue they haven't necessarily helped move the needle when it comes to erasing racism in our country. Well, as you know, private equity has gotten to be so, so powerful. Venture capital has become more and more important, both in Wall Street and in Silicon Valley. So we need to have, you know, most most places have never had a black executive. Most major private equity firms and venture capital firms have never had a black managing director or a black partner. So we need to be included in those lucrative parts of our economy that not only make a lot of wealth for people to work in them, but they have so much impact on the companies that they bring public. Uh, often, when they bring these companies public, a lot of them, the, a lot of companies that come through the private equity or venture capital network, have never had an African American on their boards, and so that's so important because there's so much influence that the giant private equity firms have in our society and our venture capital firms have in our society. We've got to be included in that part of the economy if we really want to move the ball down the field. And so, John, on that point, I'm so interested in what you just said because it feels like the the folks who might be able to make a difference in the behavior of the venture capitalists and the private equity firms are the ultimate investors there. Those are big pension funds and endowments and folks you know very well. Is there the will on the part of some of those big institutional investors to force this issue a little bit? You know, it's interesting. I think with the it's fallen through the cracks, basically. The major uh, public pension funds have done a terrific job of pushing public companies to have right. diversity on their boards. But they haven't gotten to that next level of all these privately held businesses where they actually, have, you can argue, have more influence because they're writing these big checks to these private equity firms that if they say they've got to embrace diversity, it would happen. It would change. And then secondly, you're right. The nonprofits have been actually the worst. They've also fallen through the cracks. They get a lot of government money. Um, they have so much power and influence. If the Ivy League schools and the and the big company, the big schools like Notre Dame and Michigan and throughout the country, push this agenda, those companies, those private equity companies and venture capital companies, would have to uh, change their ways because their most most important customers are pushing them to do the right thing. 
We're speaking with John Rogers, the CEO of Aerial Investments. And, and John, I, I want to just continue on this, if we can, for a moment. I had a, a big private equity manager say to me uh, earlier today, in fact, that we were at a very interesting moment here in 2020, where if you look at ESG, environmental, environmental, social, and governance, you know, the E was sort of like capital E for the. It feels like the last six months to a year. You know, a lot of folks were getting behind that. And now here in mid 2020, maybe the S is getting a little bit more uh, attention. What do we need to keep that attention there? Well, I, I think that uh, not only do we need to get the nonprofits and the big pension funds to ask these questions around diversity and inclusion, but also our political leaders yeah. continue can, can make a real difference. You know, what's happening in Congress right now where we have progressive leaders like Maxine Waters and uh, Joyce Beatty, the congresswoman who are very engaged in leadership of the Financial Services Committee of the House, they've been able to impact and force financial institutions to do more around diversity and inclusion. We need to get more progressive elected officials like that interested in bringing economic parity into our society. Because you're right, people have gotten enthralled with important issues around the environment and all those types of issues that are critical, but they've stopped asking about economic justice the way the old days, Harold Washington, when he was the mayor of Chicago, and Maynard Jackson, when he was the mayor of Atlanta, they asked these tough questions, and we've gotten away from it. So we've got to sort of almost go back to the future and get our political leaders to push this agenda, and also our civil rights leaders to remind people that economic justice is so important. Where does it all start, though, John? You know, we've had a lot of conversations about kind of where you're born determines what kind of education you get, which determines what kind of job you get, which determines what kind of benefits, health care, you name it, that you get and kind of, you know, determines your place in society. So where do, where do we start? We throw a lot of money at health care. We throw a lot of money at education. And yet here are the gaps still. All right. Well, one of the things that, you know, it's clear that when you have successful the wealth is the key. You know, wealth is at the heart of it. You know, if you have equal wealth, you're going to have equal education. You're going to have equal health care. You're going to have an opportunity to have a, a successful retirement, et cetera, et cetera. This is a capitalist democracy we're a part of. And if African Americans are left out of the economic equation, we're going to suffer all the ills of our society. We know so much of this goes back to prior Jim Crow uh, that we lived through, the separate but equal, all the kind of things that happened that didn't allow us to fully participate in our capitalist democracy, all the segregation that we had to live through. Um, it's just, you know, it's just insidious, and that's why the wealth has uh, just deteriorated and deteriorated and why the anger is building and building, because it's been multi-generations of families who've realized they haven't been able to fully participate economically. Hundreds of years. So is it different? Is something different this time around? Because, as you well know, the conversations have been happening for a long time, and yet here we are. You know, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we have a more progressive Congress than we've ever had, more diversity in the Congress than we've ever had in history. I think that is a big deal that's going to make a difference. And I know from talking to the CEOs on the boards that I serve on and talking to many of the CEOs of the companies that we've invested in in Ariel, this feels different this time. People want to hear best practices, how they can make a difference. And people are feeling that something is really wrong in our society and that this is a time for us to really fight for change and, and, and again, fight for economic justice. 
you know, John, you mentioned serving on boards and, and, you know, that's an area, whether it's in public companies or private companies, that we continue to just see huge gaps in, in many ways. What needs to be done on that? Again, does that come from the ultimate sort of money behind the scenes? Is there something that can be legislated on that front? Because that feels like a really important piece of this. You know, know, it's hard to legislate uh, quotas in this environment. I think you can do what uh, Representative Chris Welch has done here in Illinois to force transparency so we have the data to see the lack of diversity at some of our biggest companies here in the state of Illinois. I think that makes a big difference. The second thing that doesn't get talked enough about is we need to have diverse directors who come from a background of understanding uh, the civil rights agenda understanding the historical discrimination that's been part of our society and willing to speak up and fight for social justice once you get into the boardroom. You know, if you just have, if you're someone who just comes in and you're diverse, but you're quiet and shy and and don't speak up, you know, the white male CEO is often going to think, well, if my minority directors aren't saying anything, I must be doing a great job here. Right. So we've got to get the right people into these board seats who are willing to fight and speak up. So, you know, here I think, you know, the virus, nobody had a playbook for understanding kind of how to deal with, you know, the world pretty much, you know, the economy shutting down here. John, what's our playbook for making changes? If you were talking to CEOs, talking to small businesses, what are the first couple of steps they have to do to make a difference to really help erase racism and make sure that blacks are not being left behind in this capitalistic democracy? You know, We have at our Black Directors Conference, all of us have agreed on what we call the three P's, uh, people, uh, purchasing, and philanthropy. And philanthropy is pretty straightforward. We want to make sure that the philanthropic dollars go to civil rights organizations, not just always to the local opera or the symphony or the biggest university in town. Secondly, when it comes to purchasing, we want to make sure that we're keeping track of the spending by category so that we can push our companies to work with minority firms in everything we do, in African-American firms in everything we do, from finance to professional services to technology, not just the traditional supplier, supply chain things, the lowest margin part of the spend. And third, measure the people. You know, not only understand and, and tie compensation to making progress with minority executives at the company that you're involved in, And also, at the same time, all the professional services firms that work for the company that you're involved in, making sure they have black managing directors and partners on the relationship with your institution. So we think that that's what enlightened companies need to do. Stick with those three Ps, diverse people, diverse purchasing, and diverse philanthropy. You can really move the needle to make a difference. And John, what about for an individual investor? You know, we talked about sort of ESG writ large, but it feels like, you know, individuals are wanting to do something with their money. And some of that can be done philanthropically, as you pointed out. But for an individual investor, what should they be looking for? Should they be looking at the board of directors? Should they be looking at that supply chain? How should they think about it? Well, I think that is something that's really important. They should uh, vote their proxies and vote no when boards do not reflect America and they're not as diverse as they should be. And then maybe you have a chance to make sure that you have strong directors. Because I know, you know, it makes a difference when you have people who are going to speak up and make a difference. 
And um, I think that question can be asked by shareholders, whether institutional shareholders or individual shareholders, uh, to your question. Um, you know, write letters to the CEO and say, hey, I see you put someone on your board, but I look at their resume and there's nothing there that shows that they care about civil rights or diversity. So how are they going to help you achieve these goals in this uh, dramatic environment we're living in? I got to say, John, uh, just got 20 seconds left here. It feels like leadership and stepping up has never been more important than now. Exactly. You know, in the spirit of Dr. Dr. King, John Lewis, uh, you know, Bobby Kennedy, people who spoke up and fought against uh, racism and were not shy about it, they're the ones that made, made such a difference in our society and opened up doors for all of us. Well, we really appreciate your time, um, John. Thank you so much. John Rogers, he's CEO at Ariel Investments, co-CEO on the phone from Chicago with a really thoughtful conversation and really some thoughts on what we need to do to make it all better. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. This is a real, This is a story that really captured both of our attention, uh, Carol, in, in many ways, yes. just smirking at me. No, I'm not smirking at you. Oh, just at the world at, at large. something else. All right. Uh, it <laughs> well, is... we also just, James Tarmy walks in the room whenever we're going to do something with him, and we just like, we light there's up. such joy. <laughs> there absolutely is. There absolutely is. James Tarmy is on the phone with us. He, of course, is a writer at Bloomberg Businessweek covering all things culture, and he's brought along a special guest, Kevin Claiborne, a student at Columbia University's Visual Arts MFA program. So, James, bring us into this. Set it up. Sure. So Kevin's work was initially uh, brought to my attention by a photo curator at the Brooklyn Museum. And um, what struck me as I began to look at it was that, especially in his recent work, um, Kevin was obviously a participant in demonstrations, but the, the work that he made as a result of it wasn't just documentation. It had a conceptual and an aesthetic dimension that I found extremely powerful. And so um, I got in touch with Kevin, and um, we were able to feature some of his newest work in the pages of Business Week, which was just an incredible opportunity for us. Um, and, and Kevin, you know, you know I'm, I'm curious, we didn't actually get to talk very much about what it's actually like to make art now um, versus, let's say, two months ago. <laughs> <coughs> what's it like? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it feels some ways new and some ways old. It's sort of um, just as troubling as it was before, given like the content of some of my artwork. So, mm -hmm. uh, in a way, it feels the same, and in a way, it feels like a new experience, given uh, what's going on um, around the country and specifically here in New York. For sure. And Kevin, tell us about what you saw in New York and, and how you choose your images. Yeah, so basically, <clears throat> while I'm out, I try to capture, uh, you know, the energy and emotions of the people protesting police brutality, uh, while also um, making sure I'm not being too exploitative over the moment uh, as an artist or as a photographer. And um, as a black artist, I try to make sure I'm with the people and not just uh, in observe, observation sort of capacity. Um, so I'm looking at um, what's going on around me, I'm looking at all directions, not just people, you know, with their fists up and with, with their signs, but I'm looking at kind of everything that's going on, the things that uh, people might not necessarily be paying attention to as well. 
So your art, though, Kevin, you know, you're documenting the protests that we saw in the city, right? The protests against racism. Um, and I highly recommend everyone go to Bloomberg.com uh, or if you're on the Bloomberg, uh, the terminal or check out, you know, the magazine for, for some of these pictures. But what's interesting is as you were documenting what was going on, you became part of the story. Sure. I mean, I think we're all part of the story, but we True. all take a different role in our in our way to um, sort of be a part of that history. So whether it's a passive or active uh, participation, we're all a part of it. Um, you know, Carol, it sounds like you're 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 mentioning the fact that that, that Kevin was actually um, attacked yeah. um, uh, by by police. Kevin, I'm curious, was this the first time that you'd actually experienced? kind of physical violence at the hands of police, personally? Uh, physically, maybe with the first time I've been hit with a metal baton. It's not the first uh -huh. time I've been maced, and it's not the first time I've had a uh, negative interaction with police. Um, so, yeah, it was the first that got this, this physical, I would say. Right. And, James, in your story, you talk about, um, you know, Kevin, when you were photographing you know, fellow marchers and a police officer approached you with a baton and, and swung it at your face, your knees and camera, uh, even though you put your hands up. So, you know, it's it just, you know, I think part of, as you said, we are all part of the story. You know, it's not an individual problem. It's not an institutional problem. It's an American problem. And I think the more we kind of unfortunately hear about these stories and understand with what frequency they happen, that hopefully we get to a better position, Kevin. I mean, I would hope so. You know, it takes small increments and small work from everybody in all positions and all work uh, positions, you know, from different experiences and backgrounds to sort of do the work that they can do best in their own personal day-to-day -day lives, within their own circles and within their own bubbles. So, you know, me as an artist, I'm going to make art out of it, but I'm also living it day-to-day -day as a, you know, a black American citizen. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's something that even if you don't feel particularly drawn to, you know, maybe marching or being loud publicly, um, there are other ways to participate in, you know, making sure that all citizens here have justice and everybody has, you know, the rights that we all are supposed to get. And Kevin, what are the conversations that you're having with your classmates and, and colleagues uh, at this moment? And, and how have they changed even over the over the last couple of weeks? Because I do feel that, you know, a lot of folks, us included, are you know, eager to, to not let this moment pass in any way. And I think a lot of people candidly are, are looking to your generation to kind of carry this forward. What are the conversations you're having? <clears throat> Most of the conversations I'm having uh, with my fellow classmates revolve around the fact that these issues that are being uh, more publicly documented nowadays are not new issues, but they are old issues but we just live in a generation where we have more access to technology and more access to things being instantly shared globally uh, through video and through social media. So uh, we're looking at more radical ways to sort of change how we create our future. Uh, if that's defunding and disarming and disbanding police forces in different cities nationwide in order to have more uh, community-centered and publicly funded and community-oriented uh methods of safety, then that is one of the strategies. And also looking at, um, particularly for black photographers to not only be hired for situations that revolve around black trauma and black pain, 
but also just be seen uh, for the talent that we have that uh, doesn't necessarily revolve around those topics. Um, so those are some of the conversations I've been having lately. Um, and I'm looking forward to see also how the companies that I've been supporting with my dollars uh, start supporting uh, these movements uh, that we're out here fighting for. Yeah, it's a really good point. Uh, the economic one, the economic argument is a powerful one. And the idea of representation, we were talking about this with, with John Rogers earlier, totally. you know, that mm -hmm. you can't just pigeonhole and, uh, and be about one specific thing. All right. We're very grateful to Kevin Claiborne. Thank you so much. Student at Columbia University's Visual Arts MFA program. Joining us on the phone from New York, as was James Tarmy. James Von Tarmitz, he's the best writer for Bloomberg Business Week. He's the king of joy. Joining us. He is. He is a terrific guy and always brings thought-provoking things yeah. to us, and we really appreciate it. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. So it is time for the drive to the close. We just heard from uh, Charlie Pellet and stocks tumbling the most in 12 weeks. We're pretty much uh, hovering or just off our lows, but you've seen the Dow down uh, about 7% or so. Leo Kelly is back with us, founder, chief executive officer, co-chief investment officer at Verdon's Capital Advisors. They oversee approximately $2.5 billion in client assets, although it might be a little bit less today because of the pullback. Um, he joins us uh, on the phone from Hunt Valley, Maryland. I say that with a chuckle, but I don't really mean it. I mean, this is this is a real decline, Leo. It is a real decline, and uh, the fourth largest uh, point decline in, in the Dow's history. Obviously, point not not percentage. So it's uh, it's meaningful, and um, I think it's probably even more meaningful because it really comes without any concrete economic data or specific event to pull back uh, something of, of this magnitude. So I think that's probably what's even more surprising and confusing for investors. And so how much of it, and I'm not saying, I was about to say blame, and, and that's not really the, the right word, but how much of this do you think does go back, Leo, to, to what we heard from the Fed chair yesterday, both in, in tone and in substance? Well, I, I think you have to add up all of the, uh, convenient explanations we hear from Wall Street, right? There's the the resurgence of some cases, although the market's been up for multiple days while cases have right, risen. Yeah. Um, there's the Federal Reserve saying the economy is going to be bad this quarter. I mean, really? Yeah. <laughs> of course it's going to be bad this quarter. Right. And, of course, they're going to be under serious constraint over the next couple quarters and couple years for interest rates. I think the real secret behind this is is look at the pattern of the loss during the day. We started with the futures this morning down around 500. By the time we opened at 700, built to 900, and then it just started to accelerate at the close. What this tells me is that all of that, you know, all of that explanation is excuse. What we have is a market that ran significantly. We're still back to basically end of May numbers. We've given off some of a blow-off top, 
And I think as the day was going on, what happens? People with the profits are saying, hey, it's still not that great out there. I've, got a, I've made a 50% run or more in this particular name. I'm going to go ahead and pull off. But if you're the buyer, you're still at elevated levels. Tough to get those, those bottom feeders to come in and buy when we're still extraordinary levels above where we bottomed out in March. I got to say, our Vince Signorella um, with our, our macro squawk box, and he's talking to traders all day, and he's, you know, talking with them, sharing that out on the Bloomberg terminal, you know, sent me a note this morning, 8 a.m., and I think he sent it to our producer, Paul Brennan, as well. And he said, you know, traders see this as a tired market. You can't just go one way. And sometimes there really are more sellers than buyers, you know. So it's not like Jay Powell all of a sudden, oh, my God, we didn't know that. I mean, this is sometimes how it goes. And we can't, Leo, ignore the more than 40% gain we saw in the S&P off the bottom. And I know we're just getting back to kind of what we lost over the virus concerns, but still, that's a big move in a really short period of time. Yeah, I, I agreed. And that's, I think, my point is that we've, yeah. we've come so far so fast that a pullback like this, maybe, maybe not in one day, but um, this is healthy. This is what you need. And as we say all the time, if you're going to be an equity investor, volatility is in the DNA of an equity investor. And so um, if, if, if this today causes you to behave differently in investing in a long-term portfolio, then you're not an equity investor. This is, this is a moment that makes sense given the run that we had. And hopefully long-term investors are starting to get ready. We still hold cash. We're ready to put cash to work. We didn't do it today. This is, you know, this is a sudden move off of a market top that was pretty significant. So patience is uh, really the best antidote to this kind of market. And so as you uh, start to think about the human aspect of this market in all senses, Leo, you know, we certainly see some sentiment, negative sentiment in the market today. But part of, I think, what we're all trying to predict to some extent, and human beings are both uh, surprisingly easy and surprisingly difficult to predict when it comes to behavior. Part of what we're ultimately betting on is how people are going to act in the coming months and, you know, next couple of years. We had an interview earlier with the CEO of Hilton, you know, essentially asking him a lot of the same questions. When do people come back and, and start spending money? How does that factor into your investment thesis here? So it, it definitely factors in. I think um, I think the mistake that we make, uh, human beings tend to be biased to the tangible. So they look at the moment and the moment that just occurred, and they react to that immediate evidence that's in front of their face. What we try to do is look forward and um, and look at the consistency of human beings, right? There are a few of them. <laughs> One is investors buy high and sell low. That's unfortunate. Um, and fighting that temptation is, is part of the game that we play. But also what we know, and this is the positive, is that human beings tend to be resilient. They tend to be, especially here in, in the United States, very resilient, highly adaptable, and highly entrepreneurial. And so as this as we come out on the other side of whatever this is, um, then we think that that adaptability entrepreneurialism takes over. Every time we've had major change, um, it's hard to see 
the next whatever, the Google, right, which didn't exist before the tech crash in 2000. Right. Um, those things, Not so long ago. Those things come out of nowhere. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and we've, and we've had a lot of those conversations about things that were happening. We just talked with Chris Nassetta, head of Hilton, you know, that digitization within their industry, it's been happening, but stuff like this and a time like this just makes it all happen so much more quickly. So, and we're seeing it with medicine, education, so a lot of things. Um, Leo Kelly, great to check in with you. Founder, CEO, co-chief investment officer at Verdant's Capital Advisors, $2.5 billion in client assets. Uh, joining us on the phone from Hunt Valley, Maryland. But those numbers, Jason, we haven't seen them in a while. But the market doesn't go up always in a straight line. It's just not how it works. It's true. Um, and yet, as Leo said, you know, sort of you do sort of catch your breath, though, when you see uh, numbers of this magnitude. So it'll be interesting to see as we look to the trade tomorrow, rounding out the week, um, what the sentiment is. And we will be keeping an eye on it. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.